Welcome to another edition of the Dogger Pass Podcast. This for UFC Vegas 65. This episode of the Dogger Pass Podcast and all episodes of the Dogger Pass Podcast are brought to you by Prize Picks. Use promo code DOP when making a new account to get a match up to $100 on your first deposit. We got producer Megan on the sticks. Cody Safdick is on the line. I've been getting torched recently, Cody. I mean, we're coming to you a little bit early this week. Think of this episode more of a, like, as like a you know UFC first look. Um, cause really didn't have time to like do too much tape on these, but we'll give our initial thoughts, what we're thinking about these lines and everything like that. Uh, as we go through the 13 fight card here, um, I've been getting a little bit torched recently. I've been betting too many underdogs and all the chalks coming through. So it's been, uh, yeah, it's been a rough, like for the last two weeks, particularly, but like the last month or so, not so great for yours truly, but, um, it's a marathon, not a race. Got to keep yourself in the game, keep surviving, and eventually, you know, fortunes will change. But uh, how are you doing this week, buddy? Yeah, good, man. I was very content with how last week's card played out. Again, a lot of the underdogs that I myself chased were at the bottom of the parlay, so them losing, it is what it is, not the end of the world. But more primarily, Dan Hooker came through, Carlos Olberg came through. They were kind of the big value plays uh, on the women's side of things. Obviously, uh, crushed fairly easy there, Molly McCann. Well, well, that was really the stuff to take worst bet I've ever made. I know a couple of people that are on the same page. She's got the barstool backing. She's got the Patty Pimblet backing. It's like, yo, we know she can't defensively wrestle. No. So what's she going to do against a, a, an Aaron Blanchfield type of opponent? So things went pretty good for the most part. Now, you and I talked about it on the preview show. Um, I did fully intend on going with Alex Pereira, building yeah, the party. What a little was bit that tougher. all about? Well, a little bit tougher, right? Because again, looking at it, it's like who are who am I putting right at the top? Who's like my second most confident player? Who's my third most confident player in the card? And so again, it came down to like a hooker minus one sixty-five or a Carlos Olberg minus one thirty-five. Neither of them scream, I want to be on your top ticket. And so there's a bit of hesitancy there. So, anyways, I thought to myself, I'll just put Izzy Adesanya at the top. No big deal, right? And if enough of these tickets are intact that it's worth hedging out, 100% I'm going to take the hedge out. It's a violent main event. Could go either way. Obviously, there's some history and there was a knockout. Like, why would you want to roll Izzy? But again, I mean, it's all about crafting the parlays. The issue is if you're not there to actively tell people going into the main event, hedge, 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 then they just don't. And then when they lose, it's somehow your fault. That they didn't hedge out so i don't care if you watch the program you know pretty much how the strategy goes you understand that the hedge out at the end this is the kind of card i'll do the exact same thing i like sergey spivak right i'm gonna put sergey spivak on the top of my card if i've got three or four tickets intact in this past weekend that's what we had we had a, a minus 838 still in, or sorry a plus 838 uh, still intact a plus 340 still intact you know your top ticket still intact take your hedge out you know there's a bunch of money to be made there and it's an easy hedge out because the underdog's big plus money and has a, a a strategy of winning that involves around KOing your guy stiff same thing this week i like spivak how's spivak gonna lose this main event paul we're about to talk about it but i'll tell you what out. There's an inclination here that he's probably going to get KO'd stiff if he's going to, to to lose. So I'll play him. I'll play him all day. But you can't be too proud to pull the hedge out at the end. I, I don't. I, I get letting it roll if you've got a ticket left in play, a t a two tickets left in play. But again, if you were ever in that same strategy and the PRP is still going, and you somehow hit the first 13 fights, you're rolling into the 14th fight of the night, everything's intact. You wouldn't hedge. Come on, man. We're setting it up for the hedge. So. Last week was actually difficult, man. It looked like a lot of underdogs were going to come through and maybe not so much the case. 
And I even let myself get cold feet. Like you and I talked on the show. I picked Ryan Spann, did the show with Manfred on the Thursday, talked to a couple of people. Geez, Reyes is just too big and too strong. And Spann's got I no casting. Like, I feel bad about that one. Well, a couple of people. It's not just you. No, 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 not just you. And it's my own fault. I'm a full grown man, right? You take tidbits of information, you analyze it, you think what makes the most sense. But you could just tell that Reyes is not. I, I don't know. It, it's, it's last week's card. It is what it is. But Span did spring off a nice underdog upset. And of course, Alex Pereira in the main event springing off a nice underdog upset. There was no cause for concern last week. I thought the favorites that we keyed in on came through. And outside of people that maybe didn't pull the trigger on the hedge. Again, I don't, I, I don't know what to tell you, right? If you, yeah. Actually, I do know what to tell you. I don't do the tweets on. I don't really care about the Twitter side of things. You put out the picks, Okay. And what I would hope is people are like, oh, yeah, I listened to the show this week, and this is his picks, someone accordingly, maybe switch a couple of picks. But a lot of people, they don't even listen to the show. And to those people, I, I don't care, man. If you don't listen to the show, it's easy to be like, bro, you had Izzy at the top. He was your most confident player. Bomb. I knew he going to get knocked out. I knew he going to get knocked out. <laughs> yeah. First of all, you didn't know he was going to get knocked out. Second of all, pretty good fight. And third of all, you obviously just didn't watch the show, man. I just, I just don't know what to tell you. Yeah, Pereira was nine to one live on the money line, um, and then he was like eleven or sorry, was, yeah, eighteen to one by decision. I mean, if you took the decision prop after round four, you had no real chance except for a draw coming through there. Um, and then him by knockout was like eleven to one. Like that, that was Izzy was winning that fight. It is what it is. That's that's MMA, He's up and it's three been one. He gets caught three title <laughs> three title fights insane. this year. Obviously, you got the Yuri Prohashka versus uh, Glover Teixeira. Uh, <laughs> you know that was the most absurd one with Prohashka getting a round five submission. And then you've had and then you had obviously Leon Edwards. I was on the right side of that. I was on the wrong side of. Uh, Texera. Of Texera, and I actually I, I got lucky. I I ended up adding some um, some under four and a half, which won by thirty seconds. But by no means was that a sharp <laughs> bet. Um, so that that yeah. helped salvage some of my night, I suppose. But yeah, it's been it was pretty rough. It was not my finest work by any stretch of the imagination. Hopefully, UFC Vegas sixty five is, and we got Sergey Spivak taking on Derek Lewis in the main event. Spivak's a minus 200 favorite. Derek Lewis can be had for plus 170. Uh, one of these books out there just opened up like props. And I was like, well, I w if Lewis is plus 170 by knockout in a five-round fight, I'm interested to see like what is his by knockout prop. His by knockout prop is plus 180. His inside the distance prop is plus 175. So it's like they know that all of his win probability is wrapped up in him landing one of those big hands on Sergey Spivak's chin. I think it's possible that that happens. Is it more likely that Spivak's able to take him down at uh, at will, uh, ride him out, uh, beat him up, and probably force him to quit? Yeah, I mean Lewis. Obviously, it seems like he's maybe at the end of the tail uh, at the end at the end of the trail at this point. I mean, it's a heavyweight fight. It's a high volatility type of situation. Anytime Derek Lewis gets in there. The cleaner path to victory seems to be on Sergey Spivak's side. Derek Lewis obviously just needs to land one clean one, like Walt Harris was able to do to Sergey Spivak. Tom Aspinall was able to do to Sergey Spivak. It's definitely possible that Derek Lewis gets this knockout. I'm going to lean towards where I think you are going with this one. 
with uh, I'm going to pick Sergey Spivak. I think even though there's a bit of a, a size disparity here, I still think that like he should be able to take him down at will and uh, and absolutely mollywop him if he gets this fight to the mat. I see that playing out pretty much pretty consistently, maybe seventy percent of the time. Um, so yeah, I'll pick Spivak. I'm terrified about the uh, the nuke coming back from uh, Derek Lewis, though. So, I mean, obviously, super early in the week. We'll see where these numbers go, but I'm not too excited about betting this main event. What about you? Listen, it's a classic Derek Lewis fight. He's the plus money underdog. All analytics suggest that he's going to get taken down or likely get roughed up and beaten up. But yeah, he's the Black Beast. He's got that tremendous power in his hands, and it only takes one to uh, turn the tide. You and I talk about this pretty much every time a Derek Lewis fight comes up. When he wins, they're usually in fights he's losing, right? And he's able to pull off that that big comeback, the Alexander Volkov fight, you know, the Victor Pesta fight once upon a time, his fight with Shamil Abdurakimov, like him taking that his fight with Travis Brown takes that initial beating and is able to come back. But yeah, 37-year-old Derek Lewis, it does feel like the injuries are starting to mount up. He's always one to have a bad back. He's got a bad hip. He's not able to train to the level he wants. Sometimes he just shows up. I'm not going to say for the paycheck because he's always down to throw those hands. But sometimes he shows up motivated. He's going to get the win and, and advance his career. And sometimes he shows up, he's a little bit compromised. At 37, I think you're you're getting a lot more, that more compromised version. And he just doesn't look all that same. Uh, and his last number of fights, again, he's lost his last two and just not like the 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 Taitui Vasa fight. He gave him a good first round. He threw down. He landed some good shots that hurt Taitui Vasa. But as soon as he got extended out of that first round, his cardio just falls apart. Now we always talk about bad takedown defense, and he shows career takedown defense in the UFC. 54%. Most guys that have wanted to take him down have taken him down. But funnily enough, he actually hasn't been taken down in the UFC in over two years. It's not even like that's the only strategy to beat him now is get this guy out of the ground. Guys are standing up with him and having a lot more success. So I do see a lot of improvements out of Sergey Spivak in his stand-up game, but it would be such a bad decision to stand in the center of the cage and throw down with Derek Lewis. So I have to assume his setup is use the jab, use the front kick, and eventually get under this guy. Lewis particularly struggles with single leg takedowns and lo- and like low ankle trips. Shots set his base off, and it yeah. Well, shots of the body are his kryptonite for sure. But it seems like like Spivak's setup game and his takedown game are going to be good enough that he should be able to take down Lewis. Now Lewis has always relied on the exact same thing. He just decides YOLO, time to stand up, and will just push his opponent off and get up. And again, it's worked against a lot of guys, and it's worked against a decent amount of BJJ black belts as well. But 37-year-old, older, tired, hurt, compromised Derek Lewis. Yeah, it's not just it's not that easy. You can't just decide to get up whenever you want, and then the amount of energy that you exert, and then you get taken back down. He's live for the KO. If you're gonna bet him, you're gonna bet him by the KO, and you're probably gonna hit that under two and a half, under three and a half for Derek Lewis. But I see one guy on the back nine trending downwards. They're giving him some tough matchups. He's not looking quite as interested. And for Spivak, not nearly fighting the same level of competition, but there's no doubt about it, Paul, that this guy's filling into his frame. He's already big for heavyweight, but with one of these guys that didn't walk around all that heavy, he's starting to fill out. He's starting to mature. He's starting to add different wrinkles to his game. You can point out certain spots where it's like, oh, I don't think he looked good in uh the Alexei Olenek fight he looked god awful you know he was getting outstruck at times he didn't get to take down in the first he looked awful the next fight against Tom Aspinall he gets destroyed in the first round like is he vulnerable yes and he's always been susceptible to those big heavy power punchers 
But you can see that this guy's takedown game is solid. He's able to get down big opponents. And once he's on the ground, very positionally sound, good top pressure, the kind of guy that just will smother you and tire you away. He's still getting better. He's still filling up that frame. His cardio is getting better. He's getting the experience. And the UFC is obviously looking to transition this guy to maybe a top five, top 10 type of heavyweight. And beating Derek Lewis would do a lot for his resume. So... Uh, again, going back to his last fight against uh, Augusto Sakai, six takedowns, mauls him on the ground, takes him out into the second. That's the second straight performance where he gets easy takedowns, great on top. How does Derek Lewis lose? He gives up easy takedowns. He's not very good off his back. So maybe it's not that simple. He'll just get the easy takedowns and grind him out. But I think that being the more likely outcome. But again, if my parlays are intact and I stand to make a big money off it, as much as I'm not betting Derek Lewis, I do not like Derek Lewis at all. You'd be a fool to recognize that he does not at least have a chance oh, yeah. in this because Spivak's losing condition, right? How he loses is generally get torched by these big heavy power punches. We've seen it happen a number of times. Lewis fits that bill and Lewis is dangerous for the first five minutes, which could be a problematic. So last but not least, I'll leave you with this. I am going to take Spivak. Spivak pre-fight flop. Could end up on one of the top two tickets. I do have faith in him, but I'm not stupid enough not to hedge out. But could be a decent live betting opportunity if Spivag does not get torched in the first round. Because uh, if Lewis is going to win, again, one has to imagine it's going to be early. But if he can kind of take some of those shots, you know, neutralize Derek for the early little bit, but even just drops the first round, Lewis will start to tire. And I think that's when Sergey's going to trip him up, get on top, and do some damage. So... Regardless, I'm going to have to, to uh, take the polar bear, Sergey Spivak, to get the job done. I think it's better as a live, just to... Uh, jump onto that. I think it's a better live betting perspective if Spivak doesn't get rid of him in like round one and then it pops up as like a plus 600 because he's down around. It's like Derek fair, Lewis is fair. literally made for those. Like he's had, he has third round knockouts. He has lots of like second round knockouts where he lost round one. He looked horrible. He looked like he had to take a, a dump in the middle of the cage. Everyone remembers those. Uh, situations like he's the body language I mean Alexander Volkov is a classic situation it's like he was literally 11 seconds away from winning that fight and then Derek Lewis lands one big shot after getting absolutely mollywopped from pillar to post and uh, Derek Lewis comes through and like I don't know what the live odds were on that one but like he's got the the power in his hands to change the whole complexion of the fight with one strike. So I was thinking from a live betting perspective, it's like if we get through two oh, rounds yeah. and Spivak is slowing down a little bit, it's like even when Derek Lewis looks tired, he still has power in those hands. Um, you could get like an obscene number. Like we're talking, I don't know. You would need a, I would need a pretty uh, crazy number, obviously with him being down two rounds. You don't expect him to win by decision. You expect him only to win by knockout. Um that that was kind of my live betting angle and why I won't be jumping in at plus 170 because I kind of think the line's probably pretty accurate, to be perfectly honest. All right, let's move on to the co-main event. We got Kennedy and Zetchikwu taking on Ion Kutalaba. Minus 170 for Mr. Kennedy, plus 145 Kutalaba. Who you got here, buddy? Yeah, I'm leaning towards uh, Kenny and Jaku again. To me, it's just another, like, again, like you said, it's an early look. So we're taking out the early stuff. What do we like? What do we know? And in Kenny Jaku's case, he, to me, very much is another fighter that's green and developing. I mean, he's got a wicked long frame for the division, comes in at six foot five, 83 inch reach, fights as a southpaw. I've always thought he's had the goods, I've always thought he's got skill. Um, and talent, but just never able to really tie it all in together. I know he's been training. I know his coaches are very vested in him, and sometimes I have higher expectations than Kennedy than he actually goes out and performs. But 
I got to keep telling myself that the guy's only 29 years old and he had a late start into MMA. So at some point, if he stays the course, stays dedicated, they will figure out the best way to utilize that frame of his and he will become a problem for guys. Looking at his last number, it doesn't look particularly good, right? He's one and two over his last three. He's had a couple of dull performances in the mix. I want to focus in. He gets knocked out by Dong Jung. Terrible performance. Knocked out. Then he almost takes a full year off. When he came back against Nikolai Nigamarianu, I thought he looked good. I thought he got robbed in the fight. Uh, striking was on point. I mean, just high volume, able to control him for the most part. Started to fatigue, started to get backed up. Do I agree with the decision? No. But there was promise there. There was work in progress. There was someone that was building it and getting better. But is he ever going to re realize his potential? Maybe not. And then his last fight against Carl Roberson, uh, again, I mean, he, he actually switched up the game plan. He mm -hmm. wrestled heavy, got five takedowns in that fight. Grappling looked a lot better. I feel like that's uh, mixed martial arts that's showing you the other elements of his game. He's not just this long-rangey striker. He can grapple a little bit. Solid on top. I mean, very difficult guy to move off you. Cardio checked out. Cardio is actually another thing that's held up in some of his other fights. People remember the Carlos Ulbricht fight, the Dennis Stoichnitz fight, or sorry, the... Uh, Darko the Darko Stosic fight. Yeah, it's like he's getting taken down left, right, and center, but working his way back up. The Alberg fight, he just shells up in the early going and lets Alberg tire himself out and then comes back on. So his ability to fight for three rounds, potentially, his ability to improve his grappling, his ability to hopefully hone in on using that reach advantage. Again, I keep telling myself that this is a talented fighter that eventually will pull it all together. Last fight looked career best. Fight before that, I wouldn't say career best, but again, trending in the right direction. And should have won. I feel like these guys... I thought he should have won. I honestly did. But I'm hoping that these guys out of Fortis, these guys out of Texas, are really going to be able to hone in and 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 get him there. Ian Kudalaba, meanwhile, similar to Derek Lewis, hard guy to bet against because he's a shitty wild man. At any point, he could turn the lights off. At any point, he can show up. But similar to Lewis, he's a 50-50 guy. He does show up half the time, and he's a serious problem. The other half the time, he's uh, not so good. Um, has power. Has that European Sambo championship under his, under his belt. Has big throws. But fight so aggressively that his cardio has always been an issue not only that i mean paints himself green and shows up freaking in at weigh-in sometimes but not the biggest light heavyweight in fact a guy that would probably be best suited at 185 pounds and so my issue for kudalaba in this fight is he's not just taking on a fellow 205 or he's taking on like one of the bigger guys in the division he tends to wing a lot of his shots and for kennedy as long as he doesn't tall man defense and shell up straight up against the cage if he moves he should be able to just intercept him coming in routinely but it's the takedowns that i'm more so uh impressed with with kennedy if he takes down you know kudalaba Kudalaba one will tire because he just uses way too much muscle trying to explode back up routinely is there to give up the takedowns and in his last fight against johnny walker even in his fight before that with ryan span like he's showing you that he's not a good grappler at all so is candy on the level of one of those guys no not he's not but could he? Could he be good enough to go get them some takedowns, tire this guy out, take him to some deeper waters, touch him up from the outside, win this fight? Yeah, I, I think Kennedy can win this fight. Don't love the line at minus 170 because Kennedy has been going through some recent struggles. But again, I do see more promise in him than I see to Kudalaba at this point. So tentatively speaking, yeah, I go with Kennedy and Jakula here, minus 170. Yeah, I generally agree with most of your takes there. The, the, the big one for me is Kennedy and Jakku against uh, Danilo Marquez. I was on Marquez by submission, and Marquez had his back for two full rounds. Never really gave up on himself, constantly fought it, and then had cardio in round three to put away a completely gassed uh, Marquez in that fight. The problem with Ian Kutalaba has always been, and probably always will be, because he's been around for a while now, and we're not really seeing improvements from him. It's that he's got really good wrestling, good explosive wrestling. 
He can't hold anybody down, though. It's like Dustin Jacoby was able to take him down nine times. Well, Dustin Jacoby got up nine times. Um, and it's usually like he takes you down really, really quick, but like they're getting up immediately. Can't hold position. That's something he really needs. Like if he's he's so excellent at getting people to the ground, but it's like if you just take him down, like it's pretty much a meaningless. It's it's basically like just Waste like of energy. It's like landing a, a hook basically at that rate. Like if you're not actually getting any sort of time on top, it's like the judges don't really look at those takedowns as being anything. Um, that's always kind of been his problem here. So. I'm not going to be surprised by Ian Kutalaba getting some early takedowns, particularly in round one, but he's proven time and time again. It's like, if he's not getting subbed, obviously, by somebody with a really good BJJ game, which I don't think Kennedy has. We get into two round, late in round two, late in, or late or, and into round three, the guy just has nothing left in the tank, and then he just becomes a complete punching bag. So I'm with you. I, I think Kennedy rolls here. Um, we'll see where like props go and, and how, how it how the whole week plays out on that front, but really, really hard to uh, put any money on Ian Kutalaba at this point. I'm not gonna lie. All right, we got uh, Waldo Cortez Acosta taking on Chase, the Vanilla Gorilla Sherman, low-level heavyweights, baby. Um, minus one seventy for uh, Cortez Acosta, plus one forty-five for Chase. Who you got? Yeah, I, well, again, I think I'm going to take a shot on the underdog here. These underdogs are going to have to come through. These greasy ones going to have to come through us for eventually. And uh, I think Chase Sherman's got at least a viable chance to potentially go there and win this. Waldo Cortez, we talked about him just recently, made his debut against Jared Vandra. So a couple things that are concerning. First of all, the guy was coming in with a pro boxing background. He's a pro boxer. Not a great one, mind you, six and four, but had fought at a decent level. Um, the fights that you'd seen in Bellator, again, likes to use his stand-up. The fights you'd seen in LFA, likes to use his stand-up. Prone to getting grinded up against the cage, but good finesse boxing. So I thought he would chop up Vandra from the outside, no problem. And for the most part, I guess he did. But Vandra had a ton of success just kicking his legs, man. And not even like he kicked them that many times or if he really sat down on any of them. But he big-time compromised the general movement of Waldo Acosta-Cortez. And... Again, as someone who had a lot of money on Waldo and had him uh, pretty high up on the list of tickets, I didn't think he looked all that good no. against perhaps the most beatable guy in the division in Jared Vandera. Once it's all said and done, he took on the most flat-footed and plodding guy and really didn't outstruck him by that big of a, uh, of a differential, 73 to 56. Mm -hmm. His leg got hurt, it got compromised, and then that fight is literally October 29th, so... Two and a half weeks? It's about two and a half weeks ago since you fought. So I, you would take a week off afterwards. Your leg would be hurt. You take a few days at the very least. I don't think you just run and just be like, I want to get back in the gym as fast as you possibly can. But in this case, Chase Sherman had a canceled fight. So they're looking to rebook Chase Sherman ASAP. They offered to Waldo Cortez. Are you going to get a better version of him than you did against Vandera? No, no probably not because it was two and a half weeks ago and his leg got chewed up. So if you're now fighting Chase Sherman, well, one thing about Sherman is he's got nasty leg kicks, man. He does, and he will sit down on them. Him and his coaching staff would be very aware of the fact that this professional boxer is a little flat-footed, sits down a little too much, and you can hit him. Now, what's Chase's biggest weakness? Well, he doesn't got a great chin. Waldo Castro or Cortez, not one of these big power-punching heavyweights. He's more one of these decision guys, touch and go, take you into deeper waters. I know he's got the cardio to beat Chase Sherman. I know he's got the durability to beat Chase Sherman, but I'm wondering about the numbers. If Sherman can make this a decision type of heavyweight fight, stay to the outside, 
use those leg kicks, slow him down. You look at Sherman's numbers, and they're extremely impressive, mm-hmm. right? Lands 127 against Jared Vandra. Landed 117 against Parker Porter, 88 against Arlovsky, 79 against Sakai, 111 against Grabowski, 103 against Coulter. He's been routinely one of these 100-plus significant strikes type heavyweights, whereas Waldo Acosta-Cortez showed us in his last fight against Vandra. That's the easiest guy to put up 100-plus on that he was falling behind the numbers. He was picking and choosing his punches a little bit, and maybe he doesn't check leg kicks all that well. So I think they're all passive victory for Chase Sherman to potentially capitalize on. And at plus 145, you know what? I'll, I'll take the underdog shot. Yeah, I'm with you, to be perfectly honest. Um, yeah, the, the most of the same sentiments. I will, The only thing I will like bite back on is I think Chase Sherman, his biggest weakness is actually guys who can like grapple. It's like if you get him to the ground, yeah, okay. you're you're finding a submission. Okay. If you have any sort of jujitsu, but like I don't see that from Waldo whatsoever. He's obviously a former boxer and not even a particularly good one. Two weeks turnaround, like I'm sure any fight in the heavyweight division, you have some lumps, you have some bruises. Like he hasn't put in any sort of training, really. I would imagine since that fight. Um, yeah, plus one forty five. Greasy heavyweight, low-level heavyweight fight. I think you could do far worse than Chase Sherman. Oh, my God. I can't believe those words came out of my mouth, (laughs) Cody. But that's what we're dealing with at UFC Vegas 65. All right, moving on down. we got Andre Filio taking on Muslim Salikov. Straight pick him, homie. Who you got? Uh, Ever so slightly leaning towards Salikov, but this one's going to be greasy. So my knocks on Salikov, again, you're going to say I'm going to call him old. And I will. Yeah, Not exactly classic. like a spring chicken within the division. But but beyond that, it's low volume. It really is. He's got nasty power. He scores knockdowns in a vast majority of his fights. It's that he doesn't always follow up on these shots. He tends to just throw the one at a time. You know, he's got some flashy kicks in his arsenal. He'll go to the body. But he generally just likes to sit down on that one shot. His opponent can outwork him, no doubt. But you got to be one of these guys that's durable, that's going to take his best shot and roll through with him. When you look at his four-fight winning streak... Drops Ricky Rainey, knocks him out. Drops Nordin Taleb, knocks him out. He The Lariano Staropoli fight, he took him down three times. It was a different wrinkle to his game. He's showing he's got some wrestling, but that's not him and his best. He is Him and his best is sitting down on these punches. Same thing with Francisco Trinaldo. Never been knocked out, but in his fight with him, he drops him. It causes Trinaldo to be very tentative and stare at him the whole time, not throw any offense, and he can get through on those type of fights. But Muslim Salikov versus Jingliang Li. Jingliang Li is the leech for a reason. He likes to come forward. He likes to try to attack his opponents. He's never been in a bad fight. And you can see that Salikov being forced to work, not exactly his preferred method. Wasn't able to get a knockdown. Wasn't able to accrue any real damage. And Jingliang Li eventually turns the tide on him and puts him away. Is he going to make any vast improvements to his game? No. I think he is who he is at this point. And if you give him a low-volume striker who potentially has durability issues that may stand in front of him, that's when he'll be able to thrive. But outside of that, I think he's extremely limited. Andre Fialo, meanwhile, that's kind of where he's at. His durability, never been all that good. Look him on the regional scene. He's got some nasty knockouts, mostly by knockout, or some nasty losses, mostly by knockout. Comes to the UFC, the Michelle Pereira fight. He showed better durability in that fight, but he really did get teed off on. And then subsequently to that, he's kill or be killed. Him versus Miguel Beza, they throw down. He drops him, he knocks him out. Him versus Cameron Van Camp, they throw down. Van Camp rocks him. In the first minute and a half, he's on rubbery legs, and then he returns the favor and knocks Van Camp out. His last fight with Jake Matthews, Jake Matthews rocks him and takes him out. So, listen, all of his fights are knockdown, drag-him-type fights. Again, he's got great firepower. His durability is not great. Salikov's got low-volume firepower, but hell of heavy, heavy hands. 
big finishing ability is just low volume. So in my mind, Fialo is going to cause the fight. He's going to make it a fight. He's going to come forward and, and cause Salikov to, to react and throw down. And once it goes, my guns go boom, boom, your guns go pow, pow, boom, <laughs> boom's going to win. And Salikov's going to clip him something and put him over. So I like Fialo, I do, but durability has been his issue. And I understand Muslim Salikov's coming off a knockout loss, but traditionally speaking, the the dude's pretty tough. You know, he's a he's a multiple-time San Chao, uh, Kung Fu, hand-to-hand combat champion. He's been in well over a couple hundred fights in his career. He understands what's going to go down here. And I think it'll be one of those sites where Fialo might be landing combinations. He might be outworking them. He might be winning the fight. And then Salikov's just going to land that one money shot and put him away. So I guess Salikov, more importantly, Salikov by knockout. If you want to try to, uh, is he going to win? Probably by knockout. So you could juice up that even money price a little bit. Uh, but I'll take Muslim Solikov. Again, not my type of fighter because of the low volume, but I think he's got the right win condition here. Yeah, uh, for the purposes of the show, I'll, I'll tail you on the, the Solikov train here. I think I'm more interested, and I keep refreshing on uh, best fight odds to see if uh, a prop for the under between these two guys, both of them coming off of knockout losses against again against opponents that were a step up from what they're facing on Saturday. Don't get me wrong on that front, but um, yeah, it should be fireworks. It's a very, very fun fight. It's not one that I'm very, very confident in by any stretch of the imagination. Um, definitely interested to see what we can do. It'll probably be lined as a one and a half because the books be sharp like that these days, but um definitely uh you know keep refreshing see if i can find myself a half decent underplay between these two guys because i think the bodies are going to hit the floor as well all right moving on we got rodolfo Vieira taking on cody brundage minus 180 rodolfo plus 155 brundage who you got buddy this might be another underdog shot for no other reason Ooh. than Rodolfo Vieira minus 180. Like, just not, I'm not feeling it. I'm really not. I think he's shown to us at this point that he's very one dimensional. He's got excellent Brazilian jiu jitsu. Even when the fight does hit the ground, it's not foregone conclusion done. He's just got good jiu jitsu. It's not as if it's hot lava and you can't survive. So, the one thing he does exceptionally well and does better than anybody. Again, maybe open to interpretation, but his wrestling is just quite not honestly there. He had tons of good entries on Chris Curtis, not able to really drag him to the ground, make anything happen effectively. His striking is getting better. Physically, the guy's an animal. He's always in monster shape, and maybe he's been working on that cardio to allow him to fight into those later rounds. But, but what I see for the most part is a one-dimensional jiu-jitsu guy, struggles to get the fight to the ground, gets boxed up, gasses out, just not the kind of style I like. Again, going through his record, when he fights lower-level guys, the Oscar Pachotas of the world, he submits him in the second. Saperbeck Safarov, he submits him. They're good performance against lower-level guys. Get the guy down, grind him out. Anthony Hernandez, he got him down. He got the positions he wanted. He still flat-gassed out and then got submitted. His fight with Dustin Stolfus did not look good. Got outstruck for the better part of two rounds and then got him down and sub submitted him in the third round. That's Dustin Stolfus. You're operating at a very low level. I like Hernandez. I do. Stolfus, not so much, right? And then that fight with Chris Curtis. I love Action Man. Hopefully you love Action Man. You can get Action Man on a good price. You're going to ride him all day. And again, it was much of the same. Like he just shot desperate takedowns from too far out. I'll give him one thing. Curtis was so Striking looked better against Curtis yes, I was than just about to say. before. I'll give him that is that Curtis's hands were at his side the whole time because he was waiting for the shot. So it looked like 
Rodolfo Vieira was taking advantage. He landed some killer right hands across the chin that a chinny guy probably topples over with. No doubt the striking is getting better. No doubt the cardio is getting better. No doubt he's starting to hone in on that athleticism, but he just doesn't seem complete package enough for me. Now, he can beat Cody Brunridge because I, I just don't think Cody Brunridge is necessarily that top 20 guy that's going to give him all the problems in the world. But this, where he does have skills are areas that I think he could definitely use. First of all, he's a collegiate wrestler. So... In terms of his takedown defense, certainly not bad. We have seen him give up takedowns uh, in the past. but Maximov took him down four part. times. Maximov got him down four times and had tons of top control on him, which is concerning. But mm -hmm. again, Nick Maximov is a fellow collegiate wrestler and a BJJ black belt. So at least it was good that he was able to survive those positions. A lot of people thought he had won that fight. Um, and I think he took that fight on pretty short notice, right? So maybe you try to give him a bit of a pass in that. And his last two against Dolce, he's getting killed. He's absolutely getting killed, and at no point does he quit on himself. Eyes on the target the whole time, trying to survive, trying to move long enough to lock up the guillotine choke and get the submission. None of this means all that much. To me, it's the last one. It's the Trejan Gore fight. He's got power in his hands, and he's got that wrestling. And to me, that's going to be important here against a guy like Rodolfo Viara. If Brunridge is the favorite, I'm probably talking about how good the BJJ of Rodolfo Viara is. But that's not the case. In this case, I want to zone in on the wrestling and the and the the, the power stand-up, right? Brunridge does have the wrestling that I think maybe if he gives up a couple early takedowns, you got to make him work. You got to get back up. But the longer the fight goes, if Vieira starts to tire and Brunridge doesn't, uh, I think he can chop him up standing. Like Chris Curtis gave him a lot of respect, hit him with a lot of touch and go type shots. If you sit down on them, you could hurt him. I'm not huge on Brunridge's cardio and he's going to need cardio to win this fight. But again, I think that's he's a he's a younger fighter winning fights in the UFC, making improvements, look good against Trejan Gore's last time out. And I feel like those type of guys will be able to surprise a guy like Rodolfo Villar. So this is going to be very low on my list this week. But uh, yeah, again, this is going to be underdog shot number two here. Slight lean at this point to Cody Brunridge. Ooh, I can't jump on board with you there, buddy. I don't, don't blame you. Don't blame me. I can't do it. I can't do it. Am I going to touch a Rodolfo Vieira minus 180 price tag on the money line? I don't think so. I thought it was more impressive that, you know, he's able to keep a relative pace despite going 0 for 20 against Chris Curtis in takedowns. Maybe that cardio is a little bit better than it was before. That being said, this guy cuts an obscene amount of weight. So it's like, I'm not touching this fight until I see Rodolfo getting on the scales because we had seen it before with him that it's like if he has a really bad cut if he's really really sucked in um that was when the fluffy fight happened it's just like you know once he wasn't able to secure that submission and it turns out fluffy's super like super super talented he's legit yeah. yeah like he's he's a guy that we kind of used to make fun of and now it's like we got egg on our face because this guy looks for middleweight division looks like a decent like top 10 kind of guy um yeah, but like uh, all, I, I think the improvements I saw from Vieira in his cardio, the improvements that I saw in his striking ability, I think he's the rightful favorite here. I'm going to side with him, but I got to see him step on the scales before I put any hard-earned dollars. I'm uh, watching my 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 spots a little bit more this week than uh, you know the last couple of weeks. I've just been throwing money away on a bunch of underdogs that are not coming through. So we're just, uh, we're, you got to constantly be adapting your game and that's the process I'm in right now. But, uh, I saw that the prop that just opened on him by submission is like plus plus one twenty five. That's probably the look, but we'll see when more places open up, uh, what that price would be. 
Moving on down, we got Jack Della Maddalena taking on Danny Hot Chocolate Roberts. Minus 430 for Jack Della, plus 330 for Danny Hot Chocolate. Who you got, buddy? Yeah, well, I think this is everybody's pick of the week, right? Jack Della, even at this money line, I think he walks right through Roberts. Jack Della is a legitimate prospect. I mean, everything he's shown us has just been very, very impressive. He's still young, um, getting a lot better, and he's just got great volume. He comes on the contender series against Angelusa, who's not a terrible prospect in his own right, but he showed right there that he's got one of those million-dollar motors on him. He'll just keep fighting. He'll keep throwing. He looks as good in the third round as he does in the first round. Goes out, lands 108 significant strikes on the contender series, and right away, Dan and White's like, yes, please, my kind of guy. Signs with the UFCs, fight with Pete Rodriguez. Dude, it's the same thing. I mean, Pete Rodriguez is obviously not on his level, but is on some type of level, and Jack just walks right through him. Pete was a first-round guy. All of his wins had come from first round. I mean, he just beat Mike Jackson, same thing. It's a first round. He's at his best in the first round. No, not so. Jack Della, quick hand speed, great combinations, very accurate with his with his punches as well, and that he's able to get Pete Rodriguez out of there. And then his last fight against Ramazan Amiv. So one thing about Ramazan Amiv, He's basically the human blanket. The guy gets a hold of you. He presses you up into the cage. There's no space to work with. He's a very difficult opponent to deal with. And with Jack Dell, it's much of the same, man. I mean, he just he's able to keep his back up against the cage. He gets one takedown. He gets immediately back up. He pressures Amiv. He knocks Amiv out in the first round. The guy's got volume. He's got tenacity. He's got power. He's young. He's good-looking. He's got a very fan-friendly style. They're going to move this guy along in the right direction. And Daniel Roberts is exactly that right direction. I mean, he's entertaining enough that he'll stand there. He'll throw down with you. He's got some athleticism. He's got some flash. He's got a, you know, a few tricks up his sleeve, but for the most part, durability has quite literally always been his issue. Now you look back right through it. Dominic Steele drops him. Mike Perry knocks him out. Nordine Taleb knocks him out. Um, Michael Pereira, that flying knee, gorgeous flying knee, knocks him out. And then even his last fight with Francisco Trinaldo, okay? Every time Trinaldo hits him, he does the stanky leg, man. It's terrible posturing. It's mm -hmm. terrible body language. He cannot take a shot and roll through it. And the thing with Jack Della is this is not we're going to stand at range and have a sparring session. He is going to come at you, and he is going to break you down. And Roberts just does not deal with that level of opponent, especially that kind of pace and volume. So I got to think that Jack Della goes out there, not only gets a win, but like an empathetic under one and a half. Jack Della by TKO. I, I think he gets the job done and looks good doing it. I mean, yeah, nothing nothing shocking about that. Early props that I see out there, plus 145, Madalena round one. Madalena KO minus 175. That, that I mean, these are just ways to get yourself off of the minus 450 uh, on the money line. Uh, the round one would be a little bit more concerning. I'd be more inclined uh, with Danny Hot Chocolate. I know that he did go to decision against Trinaldo. The chin held up a little bit for him, but Jack Della's, I love me some Grandpa T, don't get me wrong. But he's, you know, we're talking of different speeds that these guys are entering and throwing shots at. Uh, Jack Della, he looks like the good so far. Um, constantly making improvements. The two losses on his record are back in 2016. Onwards and upwards for him. This should just be an easy, I mean, he should probably walk right through Danny Hot Chocolate, if I'm being completely honest. So I'm with you. No shocker. Minus 430 is, is wide, but probably justified. Uh, we got Charles Johnson taking on Zhalgis Zumagulov. Minus 155 Johnson, plus 135 for Zhalgis. Your thoughts? 
Again, this is a bit of a spam underdog play, but I think I got a slight lean towards Zagazuma Gulov at that underdog price. Charles Johnson, uh, you know, LFA guy, career regional scene guy, and as big as like talent seems to be, he gets taken down in all of his fights, and he gets back up, and he makes you work, and that's all well and good. He had, I guess, technically the right style to fight uh, a Makayev, um, and when he fought Makayev, it was just like 12 takedowns. Mm-hmm. No, no, he got up. He got up every time. Don't get me wrong, but like no ability to break the grip, no ability to create space, no ability to get away. He really did get swarmed on in that fight. That's his UFC debut. He's not young. He had been talking a lot of shit online for a long time, being like, "I should be in the UFC." They finally gave him his opportunity to give him no favors, and he come up short. Now, here's the thing with Makayev is that he still very is young, and he very is he's very much green. And maybe Charles Johnson should have been able to give him a tougher go. Malcolm Gordon. Gave him a tougher go. Malcolm Gordon arguably won the second round and was doing okay in the third until he got caught. I, I just feel like Charles Johnson didn't necessarily show up. Now, Zagazuma Gulov, he relies on the takedowns a lot himself, and I can see him getting Charles Johnson down and Johnson just popping back up. But Johnson's not really doing enough with the striking. He's not swarming. He's not. He's almost hesitant that the takedown's coming again, so he's not letting his hands go. And with Zagas, he's in a lot of these close-ass decisions. So when you look at his record, he loses to Roli and Paiva. But how? He outstruck him 66 to 52 and took him down twice. A lot of people thought Zalgus won that mm-hmm. fight. My main argument is that it was a close fight. He's good at keeping fights close. His fight with Albazi, not that he won that one, but Albazi is one of the top flyweight talents. He keeps it relatively close and a decision. His fight with uh, Jeff Molina his last time out. A lot of people thought he won that fight. Jeff Molina thought he won that fight. When they read the decision, it's he true. looks over like, oh, shit, I won that? Now, by the numbers, yeah, he outstruck Zalgas, but he gave up the two takedowns. Zalgas is strong. He's durable. He comes forward. He keeps these fights close, and they're always up in, into interpretation. Now, listen, if he's the favorite, I'm probably making the same argument saying, bro, all of his fights are close, and he's getting robbed on a bunch of these splits. Why not take Johnson? But that's not the case. Johnson's the favorite. Johnson, this fight's likely going 15 minutes. This fight's likely going to be competitive. And believe me, Johnson gets taken down by pretty much everybody. So there's nothing to, there's nothing to suggest that Zalgas isn't going to get a few takedowns. Now, it's how those judges are going to score those few takedowns. But I think he's live. I think he's live to squeak out a close competitive decision. And again, at his underdog odds, uh, I'm willing to add him to my undercard slate. Yeah, I totally agree. And honestly, I really don't have anything to add to it. That was one of the initial ones. That I was just like, Zalgas should be able to take this guy down and... Hopefully he does it consistently, and 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 otherwise like the striking is relatively just close between the two of them. Um, yeah, Jalgas has had a. I mean, he's one in four in the UFC, but it's like he's fighting good talents. I mean, his one win is against, uh, and he got and he did what he had to do against Jerome Rivera, but um, got him out of there in round one. But yeah, like otherwise, it's like all of the guys that he's lost to. I feel like Charles Johnson, from what I've seen probably loses loses to them as well and doesn't necessarily like the fight against Makayev wasn't even remotely close and then you see like Malcolm Gordon have some success success against Makayev and you're like you know that that Charles Johnson performance looks much worse than I think if we didn't see Malcolm Gordon um, against Makayev, you know, give him some hard times. So I'm with you. I think uh, live dog, Zhalgas Zumagulov. We've got Marina Moroz taking on Jennifer Maya. Minus 180 for Moroz, plus 155 for Maya. Another live dog, I think, here. Um, this is kind of like a story of, like, recency bias as far as I'm concerned. You got Jennifer Maya. She's, you know, lost three of her last four. 
And those are against Manon Fioro, Caitlin Shukagian, and Valentina Shevchenko. She's fighting the elite of the division. Um, and Marina Moroz, you know, it, it seems like she's had a bit of a, you know, career resurgence. She's definitely looking a lot better. She absolutely dominated Agapova last time out. But I think striking will be relatively competitive at the very least between them. And, and Moroz has been like going to the grappling, controlling a lot of her opponents recently. That's been like her best reason for getting these, uh, these victories. I think she's going to struggle to do that against Maya. Um, so at plus 155, I think it's a pretty clear dogger pass situation. What about you? Yeah, so again, this is totally a dogger pass type situation, and I wouldn't fault anybody for taking that Jennifer Maya. It's just like, what do what do I feel comfortable with personally? Everybody makes their bets on what they're comfortable with, and I just I, I don't I don't like Jennifer Maya. So I find myself leaning towards uh, Marina Moroz, but of course I, I don't agree with the money line. So the reason being is that when you look at Jennifer Maya, it's, it's difficult to say that Marina Moroz is going to be able to go out there and replicate what a Mano Fioro and a Caitlin Chikagin are able to do because they both fight a specific way. But yeah, no, to me, it's, she's way too plotting, man. She's way too plotting, and she allows the numbers to escape from her, right? So in both of those fights, it's her chasing her opponent around, them staying to the outside using speed and just touching and going. She comes from that shoot-to-box style where they're just going to march forward and try to land and sit down on their strikes. But again, against these active, like, mobile strikers that are interested in just point fighting, that's how you defeat that kind of raw aggressiveness. So in her last fight against Fioro, who's probably the number one girl in the division, she got tripled up on the striking numbers. Her fight against Caitlin Chukagian, a lot more competitive, but just having trouble finding the mark. Marina Moroz, at her best, Ukrainian amateur boxing standout, uh, has a nasty jab, has good volume, probably stays to the outside and tries to chip away at it. Now, what Maya has been doing She's been wrestling a lot more. Of course, she won the first round against Valentina Shevchenko, which is the only reason people keep uh, talking about her as being so elite. So she won a round over the champ, which is pretty cool. But in all, almost all of her fights, right? Her fight with Caitlin Chikagian. Sorry, it was her that got the takedown. The one with Mino Fioro, she mixed one in. I just feel that she's chasing around her opponent a lot more. And then even in that one win, because she's one in three over her last four, but the one winning is Jessica I. If you rewatch it, she probably loses that fight, if not for one thing. Incidental head clash splits Jessica Eye's head open, and there's blood all over the place. So even though Eye's actually winning the combinations, it doesn't look good to the judges because she's bleeding all over the place. You rewatch the fight, it's extremely close, it's, it's extremely competitive. And again, to me, that's just someone that can match volume and state of the outside and use their technical boxing will have advantages. Marina Moroz was supposed to be the number one contender at one point, you know, beats Joanne Calderwood in a crazy fight with an arm bar, and then it's inactivity, man. She just doesn't really fight all that often. So what do you really know about her? But to key in on her last three fights, I guess, against Sabina Mazzo, her striking looked way better. Jab was on point. Chopped her up from the inside. Used that takedown when she needed it. I mean, good work. The fight with Marina Bueno Silva, 139 to 88. Yeah. Does mix in two takedowns, but her and that's speed a similar, and her volume. That's a similar yeah. stylistic clash, to be perfectly honest. Well, I agree. Marina Bueno Silva comes from the same shoot-to-box style, mm -hmm. right? So she's plotting, she's flat-footed, and she wants to use that traditional Brazilian Muay Thai, right? But she just can't track Marina Moroz. Then Marina takes two years off, which we don't know what she's doing, but we know she's doing whatever she's doing at American Top Team, among some of the best talents and the best coaches in the game. And when she comes back against Agapova, she's a betting underdog to Maria Agapova and just 
killed her. Now, she was using her wrestling a lot more in the Buena Silva fight. She was using her wrestling a lot more in the Agapova fight, but I don't think that takes away from the fact that she's still got the boxing, she's still got the volume, she's still got the durability, and she might be able to mix in a little bit of wrestling. All of those are great tools to deal with Jennifer Maya, and people have been using those exact same tools to defeat Jennifer Maya, and I just feel like she should be able to do it. So, again, minus 180, I do not like. If I want to juice up this line and try to make it more favorable, got to be a morose by decision. I don't see her knocking out Jennifer Maya or submitting her. But of course, this is MMA. So expect the unexpected. Anything can happen. I get that aspect of it. But uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm pulling a trigger on a couple underdogs. Uh, this just not one of them. Although I don't fault anybody that likes Jennifer Maya this week. I'm flopping. I'm flopping over to your side. I'm not betting this fight, though, unless there's, like, a nice prop that pops up. Could be a pass-pass. I mean, I called it dog or pass. We're going to call it favorite or pass. I mean, that Bueno Silva fight is really kind of like a telltale sign of the Jennifer Maya fight, um, in my humble opinion. Similar stylistic matchup. She's on a a roll right now, Marina Moroz. Good for her. She looks good physically. Like, I think she's uh, finally at that point of her career where she might realize some of that early potential. Yep. It's all been coming together. She's, you know, the Playboy model and all that stuff now. Um, everything's coming up morose these days. Um, yeah, morose for both of us is the pick. I don't know if I'm going to be betting that, though. Miles um, Johns takes on Vince Morales. We got minus 145 available for Miles Johns. Vince Morales can be had for plus 125. Your thoughts? Yeah, no real thoughts, man. So Miles John to me fits the same description of a ton of good Tony Gravely types. Uh, with the wrestler boxer, extremely explosive, have the goods everywhere. They can strike, they can wrestle, they can grapple. Uh, Mario Batista jumps in mind too. He's the complete package, and then he just can't really take a punch, right? Now other guys, they're defensively they're making improvements and they're changing these things to their game. And and for him, it's like cardio is an issue. So the more he presses with his uh, with his wrestling game and tries to get his offense going, the more he tires. The more he tires, the more he starts making a bunch of defensive mistakes. And as he does that, he just generally gets caught and gets put away. So, again, uh, looking through like his past fights, Batista does knock him out. Anderson Dos Santos had caught him a few times, but he ends up knocking him out. John Castanon, his last time out, you know, backs him up, grinds him, ends up hurting him, drops him, and then chokes him out. But to me, it does it all fits the same mold with Miles John. Great potential, not exactly comfortable in tying it all in together. So could he go out there and spring the upset? For sure. Again, this guy can wrestle. He can box. He's uh, he's the exact style that I like to get behind in guys. But without the cardio and without the durability, he kind of makes it a bit of an issue. Now, Vince Morales, I actually don't like. Don't really care for him all that much. Uh, seems to be lower volume. But, but again, one thing about him is he's got some solid durability. He can wrestle. He spent out a lot of time with... Uh, with solid, you know, solid training partner, solid gym, solid wrestling foundation. He can keep the fight upright. And when he keeps the fight upright, he seems to just go through the motions and fight to his opponent's level. But there's something there. Like, I often hate it on him, but there's something there. The fight with Eamon Zahavi, you know, cleanly at works, a clean striker, beats him up. His fight with Benito Lopez, he got robbed in that fight. He dropped Benito Lopez and it was struck him 64 to 54. They uh, robbed him on that one. His fight with Louis Smolka. Louis Smolka, if anything, got a solid cast iron chin on him. Never been knocked out. Vince Morales completely extinguishes his fire with a beautiful right hand. There's stuff to like there. Now, his last fight, fight against Jonathan Martinez. Martinez just too fast, too dynamic, stays to the outside. Johns is fast. He can be dynamic, but he's not staying to the outside using his footwork to set up strikes. He's coming forward and just kind of overexerting himself. And to me, I just get a bad gut feeling that the longer the thing goes, 
Vince Morales still stays in your face. And the longer Vince Morales stays on his feet in your face, he's going to be looking to land that counter right hand. And I'm not 100% sure that Johns is going to take it. So again, Vince Morales doesn't show a whole lot of knockouts on paper outside of the Smolka fight and a knockdown against Benito Lopez. But he's got some some sneaky, decent power in his hands, and he's got enough durability, I think, to overcome that early wear. So I don't want a whole lot of investment on this one. Again, it, it's lower my priorities. It's a dog or pass situation. I think it could be very competitive. I think it could go either way. I find myself leaning towards Vince Morales. But again, when you watch tape, you will see that it, it appears that Miles John is a far superior fighter. He's faster. He, he's got better combinations. He's got better wrestling. Um, but the durability... And that that to me, once the, the cardio, cardio starts to fatigue, yeah, the car by the second and the third round he's completely gassed. When that happens, it becomes a problem for him. He just gives too many openings. And again, if you want to shit on the guy, like even just go watch his fight with Cole Smith. It's his UFC debut, but it's the same shit. He dominates mm -hmm. the first two rounds. In the third round, he's done. Smith takes his back. Smith almost rear naked chokes him, and he squeaks out a split decision over Cole Smith. He had landed thirty one significant strikes in a takedown. It's abysmal. But he gasses. Batista gasses, gets knocked out. Um, <clears throat> John Castaneda gasses, got hurt, and then got choked out. So Vince's just got to stay in the fight. And so as much as I don't really care about this fight pre-flop at all, I really don't, I would be interested in the live betting angle of it because Miles John is a hell of a problem for the first round mm -hmm. until he starts to fatigue. And if, if Morales can maybe lose that first round, keep with it, start to find openings, the later it goes, I think he would be live to maybe connect with something. Yeah, you basically stole all the words out of my mouth, so I don't have to say too much about this. Um, don't really love jumping on Vince Morales at plus 125. Expect him uh, maybe to get taken down or just lose the striking exchanges early in the fight. As you were alluding to, fight doesn't go to decision plus 120. It's obviously a super, super early number that just got released at one specific book, so who knows where that's going to go. But uh, the fact that it's plus money to doesn't go to decision, I kind of like that. I think that's where my money would be, uh, you know, at plus 120 as opposed to plus 125 on Morales. I think one of these guys finds the finish uh, in this matchup. So that's where my money would go rather than Vince Morales. But Vince Morales will be my pick for the purposes of this show. We got Ricky Tercios taking on Kevin Natividad. Ricky Tercios is a minus 155 favorite. Natividad can be had for plus 135. I mean, what a character this Tercios guy is. Like, if you watch any... I saw James Lynch had an interview with him the other day. Uh, shouts to our former uh, Fight Network uh, employer there. Our employee. Colleague. Colleague. Is that what you... Yeah. Employee. Yeah. We didn't hire. Yeah. We didn't... Yeah, we weren't his saying. boss by any stretch of the imagination. Um... I mean, yeah, the guy's just, he's either super, super stoned. He seems like he's on like ayahuasca at all times. Like it's, 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 it's the real sight to behold. Um, but yeah, that Amon's a hobby fight last time out was not exactly a great moment. Obviously he came off of, uh, off of uh, ultimate fighter as the winner of that season. You know, he, he won against Brady high stand mostly on volume, but like lots of people thought high stand, should have won the uh, that the the finale there. He just didn't sh like. I don't know what happened again. Like twenty seven significant strikes thrown. Now Zahabi wanted to fight that type of fight, but yeah, it was a really really bad look all the way around. Um, Natividad, another low volume striker, obviously knocked out by Miles Johns in his UFC debut. Knocked out in the first round. The chin is an issue, but I haven't seen. 
too much fight ending power for Ricky Tercios. I'm really torn here. The pro like I would love to say like oh like if that fight against Damon Sahabi didn't happen, I'd be like, well, you know, he was able to th- put up 100 significant strikes. That should be enough against a guy like Natividad who doesn't really throw all that much and he'll win and Ricky will win on volume, but can't ignore the fact that he only threw 70 or 27 significant strikes. There was no takedowns, no nothing. He just didn't stay active and that's what he needs to do to win this fight. I'm completely torn. I'll lean towards Tercios, but not going to get a cent of my money. What about you? Yeah, I actually been meaning to Oh yeah, okay. Okay. So it is it has happened before. Um generally speaking, you win the ultimate fighter, they try to set you up with an easy one your first fight at the gate. And there has been ultimate fighters fighter winners that lose their first fight at the gate, but UFC generally tries to get them back in the win column. I just see Martin Bravo, though. Martin Bravo actually won tough and then lost three years in a row in the UFC and got cut. So, yeah, there's just so many ultimate fighters these days. Guys win them and maybe aren't exactly the uh, the creme de la creme in the division. With Ricky Tercios, though, I find the exact same problems as you, is that when you watch him on the regional scene, guy's a little Tasmanian devil, man. He's a whirlwind. He just keeps going, and he throws, and he tries to get takedowns, and he's tenacious, and he stays on you, and... He's young and he's agile. He's like a fighter's fighter. He's looking to mix it up. His fight on Contender Series against Boston Salmon, he lands 110 significant strikes. He outstruck Boston Salmon 110 to 61. Lost the fight for the record, but 110 significant strikes landed huge. The fight with Brady Handstamp, people maybe thought he had lost because of the six takedowns given up, but even with six takedowns given up, he still scored a knockdown and landed over 100 significant strikes. So, Again, the guy's just, he's a whirlwind. And with Zahabi, Zahabi's a low uh, low volume striker. Technical, sound, high level guy, but very low volume. So it was like, this was tailor made for him to go out mm-hmm. and just do what he always does. And that's throw up the big numbers. And like, he literally just stared at him the entire time. Now, Zahabi's not known for huge knockout power. So it wasn't as if I'm worried about getting caught by something. I couldn't tell you what it was, but he did not fight like the same guy whatsoever. So I know what the UFC's trying to do trying to get him back in the good graces to give Kevin Natividad, a guy that could, uh, you wouldn't be remiss for forgetting about him being on the roster whatsoever. He is 0-2 with the UFC, both losses by knockout, but maybe more troubling than that, both losses over a, over a two-year span. So he doesn't fight very often. He's not super durable. Uh, he's not old by any stretch, but I, I don't really know how many improvements he's making. His wrestling's fairly okay. Uh, he's got some actually decent power in his own hands. Like, if you want to stand to him, he could crack you and put you away. But it seems like his wing condition is using that striking, and using that striking is getting him knocked out in a lot of these spots. So even his fight with Miles John, he seemed very low volume the entire time. And against Dana Backrell, he never really co- quite got going. I feel like Ricky Tercios will give him every chance available to make this a fight, right? To land some good shots. But if Tercios just gets back to what he does best, I feel like he should be able to just continuously work Natividad over the course of 15 minutes, land those shots, keep up the work rate. Natividad, meanwhile, he's fought effectively 50 seconds of ring time in the last two plus years so uh take advantage of that man try to drag him to those deeper waters and make something happen but whereas some guys you're like oh this guy'll fight for my dollar and he'll go for it and i'm in tercio seemed like at least he was one of those guys but that last fight definitely has it in me now that maybe you should pull the trigger back and, and not quite release the hammer because uh i guess you wouldn't pull the trigger back at all just don't take the shot because yeah tercio's maybe it could be an injury, could have been not motivated, could have been a mental issue, could have been he got clipped by something early and was just like hesitant after that. But 
cause for concern for sure because this is the type of fight he should walk right through. He should win. He should look really good doing it. And at minus 155, I actually really don't mind the line whatsoever. But uh, yeah, lost on the contender series because even though he was landing the volume, all the cleaner shots were from Boston's hand, right? The Heinstein fight, he got out, wrestled, and maybe could have lost. And then the Zahawi fight, he never did anything. So that's not just one bad fight. That's a few bad fights, right? Even on the Ultimate Fighter show itself, like not particularly like a standout runaway. And for Brady Heinstein, he's like 22 years old. He's mm. just a little kid. So... What does Tercios really have to offer? That I'm not entirely sure. And so I will pick him. He is the pick. But yeah, don't love it. Ne- nearing it towards the bottom, and you can maybe classify it as a pass altogether. That's, yeah. Sounds like we're on the same page with that. We've got uh, Maria Maria Oliveira taking on Vanessa Demopoulos. Straight pick him. It's, uh, I mean, we've talked about Vanessa a whole bunch of times. Like, her wrestling isn't very good. She's got very, very good jiu-jitsu. If she gets to the mat, you go through Maria Oliveira's career. And so, like, she's, you know, uh, Kana Azakura uh, armbarred her in 2017. She was, I mean, her first or her first MMA fight in 2015, she was armbarred. So, it's like, there have been people who have, you know, if they are able to get her to the ground, she's she's been submitted. Uh, being able to go full 15 against Tabitha Ricci would probably imply that she's made improvements there. If this fight stays on the feet, she should be able to use her reach and, you know, probably pick pick uh, Demopolis apart and, and win this on volume, frankly. Like, the numbers for her on volume have been pretty solid. Um... I'm going to pick Maria Oliveira. That is, there is not very much confidence there, but it's with Demopolis. It's like, if she can't get this fight to the mat, her striking just leaves a lot to be desired in a lot of spots. And it's a straight pick. Um, I, I, I ended up on her in her last time out in a fight that, I mean, frankly, most people thought that she lost, except for the or two of the three people that matter, the judges. Gave her the uh, the nod against Jin Yu Frey, um, and but she was like plus two hundred, plus two fifty, or whatever in that spot, and that's why I jumped on Demopolis. I feel like all the metrics, all the stats, haven't dug into tape obviously yet for this fight, but would lead me towards uh, Maria Oliveira here. So sign me up for her. What about you? Yeah, again, I think this one could definitely go either way, so I wouldn't fault anybody for one side or the other. Uh, yeah, Vanessa Demopoulos, she's super cast iron. Like she can, she's fairly durable. She got dropped, I suppose, by uh, Silvana Gomez Juarez. But again, as soon as the fight hits the ground, she's got her wits and she gets the quick submission. Mm-hmm. Her ground game's awesome. Problem is that she's never really shown that wrestling to get the fight to the ground. And her offense, even though she's willing to come forward and mix it up, is like mostly her getting hit from distance. So. She's got a whole lot of problems under her in her arsenal. In the last fight with Jin Yu Frey, I don't actually think she won that fight. The one prior, she had been dropped prior to getting the armbar. So she very well could be 0-3 in the UFC. But uh, And she's tenacious, man. There's something that I do like about her. She's a fighter's fighter. She's willing to engage. She's willing to take a shot to give a shot. And at some point, she's going to figure out you know different tools about how to get the fight to the ground. Once the fight does hit the ground, that's her wheelhouse, man. She's very, very talented on the ground, has competed at a very high level in BJJ. And of course, being a former stripper, has that like stripper grip, you know? She can use her legs to climb up a fucking pole, I swore. Okay, beat me out on that one. But what well, Vanessa Namamba's breakdown, she got that stripper guard, right? And the thing with stripper guard is 
she can get these unusual angles, get a hold of you, and when she gets a hold of you, it's money time, baby. That's where she does her best work. So with Maria Oliveira, I think that she's the better striker. She's got the better volume. She could have a lot of success. The issue being that she gives up takedowns in pretty much all of her fights. You had mentioned on the regional scene, she went over to Ryzen. She lost to Asakura. Again, taken down, submitted by an armbar. She was on the uh, contender series against Marina Rodriguez. Marina Rodriguez, not known for her wrestling. Of course, she did go one for one, getting the one takedown on Oliveira. Tabitha Ricci, considered undersized by many. Easy five takedowns in that fight. I shouldn't say easy, five for 11, but got the takedowns when she wanted it. Six and a half minutes of control time. And then her last fight against Gloria De Paula. Gloria DePaula is pretty much just a kickboxer. And DePaula got two takedowns on her as well. And actually, I was struck her 105 to 96. MMA decisions, people online. A lot of people thought DePaula could have won that fight. Very close, very tight. The main theme is she gives up takedowns in almost all of her fights. So Vanessa Demopoulos, she'll get hit. Of course, she'll get hit. She always gets hit. But she'll come forward and she'll stick with it. Maybe it's a takedown. Maybe it's a caught kick. Maybe it's you fall to the ground. Maybe she pulls guard. I don't know. But I got a feeling that the fight will hit the ground at some point. And when it does, it's, it's Vanessa Demopoulos time. So sign me up for a Demopoulos to get the job done. Um, use that flexibility. Use that submission game. Hopefully on top. Like get the takedown and get me on top. But even if she had to end up on bottom for a few minutes to uh, to eventually hit a sweep, hit a reversal, throw up a submission. Like I just think that there's a big grappling dif uh, difference here. And she should be able to capitalize on it. She was able to take down five times by Tabitha Ricci. Was able to survive against her. I don't know. Seven-inch reach advantage for Maria Oliveira, too. The more I dig into this, oh, God, I'm probably going to have money on Maria Oliveira. God help me. All right, Tabitha gonna... Ricci, five foot one with a 61-inch reach. So same, she had, same reach as Demopolis. She had a big reach. No, Vessel's got a, she's got a 59-inch reach. She's actually two inches shorter. I mean, Tapology, okay. Tapology has her listed at 62. Oh, yeah, no, Vanessa DeMoblis. Those are some T-Rex arms. Sub-60? That's a 10-inch yeah, reach advantage, bro. 59. She's going to be eating shots. She's very good at eating shots. Like, she's proven oh, that yeah. many times before. She's tough as nails, don't get me wrong. But, I mean, everything is kind of pointing towards Maria Oliveira. That's the type of car we're dealing with this week. All right, let's move on. We got uh, Brady Highstand taking on Fernie Garcia. Minus 155 Highstand, plus 125 for Fernie Garcia, who you got here, buddy? Yeah, well, definitely one I want to jump into a lot more with Fernie Garcia. Uh, again, I think we know what he's capable of doing. Showed some pretty good power on Contender Series. You know, tough, gritty, decent striking. His debut against Journey Newsom, uh, he just didn't show that he was the complete package. Like, he was giving up takedowns to Newsom, stand-up-wise. Didn't really seem super comfortable. He could have won that fight. 100% he could have won that fight. But he just kind of like out of it of sorts. But to me, the big thing was the takedown defense. Journey Newsom had taken some time off, obviously, but former pro boxer. Like the guy was a straight up boxer. Because his, his win condition is generally letting his hands go. He took some time off, dealt with some injuries, got knocked out, and then decided, I'm just going to wrestle. And then that ended up being the path to victories using that wrestling. Brady Heinstein, meanwhile, I seen this kid fight in Canada. He was like 21 years old. He fought Chan and a ledger. He literally come all the way to Canada. To fight the hometown guy in his own backyard. Give him a go, too, in a title fight. I'd like 21. Like, who does that? See him on the Contender Series. He's a dog on the bone. He looked like probably the best prospect in the show, being that he was young, he's got a good style, and he's the kind of person that you can really see making developments within the UFC. Durable, got a good chin, and uh, again, his tenacity. I think that's the biggest drawing feature to him. So 
Guess Ricky Tercios in, uh, in the final. It's a close fight. It's a, I think it was a close to a pick'em type fight. I did go with Brady Heinstein, and I think he fought extremely valiantly. Mm-hmm. Lost, got outnumbered on the feet, but the six takedowns stayed with it, was kind of way less experienced, and did everything right. Unfortunately, didn't get the victory. I think there's a lot of kid like that can work with, and again, that being a year and three months ago, I do expect to see some solid improvements out of him. Now, regardless of that, because all the improvements that he may or may not have made, that's all speculation. But what what do we actually know about this kid? He can wrestle, man. Not only can he wrestle, but he'll reshot. He'll stay on you. He'll try to do whatever he can to try to throw, you know, one, two, three takedowns into the mix and just continuously reshot, reshot, get a hold of you, take you to the ground. He's got a variety of different trips, single legs, double leg, push up against the cage, hit you in the open field. Wrestling seems to be his go-to. Against Fernie, that seems to be his kryptonite, right? So I hate to say it's as easy as striker versus wrestler, but I think the UFC sees they got a young, talented kid in Brady, was close to winning tough. You know, you want to bring this kid up along the proper way. So you give him the guy from the contender series who lost his 0-1 in the UFC, lost his debut, Lost a Journey Newson. Didn't show anything in the Journey Newson fight. Does he have a puncher's chance? For sure. But is he going to go grind for 15 minutes? I don't think so. So barring ring rust being a serious issue for Heinstein, I think he gets those takedowns and makes them work for himself. So sign me up for Brady Heinstein. Yeah, I'm in full agreement there. I think he just takes him down at will. Um, Fernie Garcia, obviously, his contender series fight is against Joshua Weems. We saw just how helpless Joshua Weems was against Christian Rodriguez at last time out. Uh, and the guy's got a long history. It's like if he doesn't get a submission, like you can absolutely rock him. So like that win doesn't really mean all that much to me. I thought, I mean, I, w- I was on Brady High Stand as well, plus one forty underdog against Ricky Tercios. It was close enough that I felt like I was on the value side. It was a split decision. Um, you know, people were very split on who they thought had won that decision. So it's like I didn't feel too bad about that bet. Um, and yeah. Being 23 years old, onwards and upwards, big improvements. And, uh, yeah, that really comes down to I think he can take down Fernie Garcia at will here. And when he's on the mat, he's not at risk of getting knocked out. So minus 155 is seems like a relatively fair price to me for Brady Highstand. So sign me up as well. And finally, we got Natalia Silva taking on Teresa Bleda. Natalia Silva is a minus 165 favorite. Blada can be had for plus 145. This one's kind of interesting because um, Natalia Silva, when she came into the UFC, she hadn't fought since 2019. It was like a nearly three-year layoff um, since she had fought in Jungle Fight. And she came in against Jasmine, and she put on a show. She was like, you're like, okay, this girl... You know, the record didn't really jump off the page or like the numbers was like, it was like pretty much a straight pick. And you're like, what do the books know that we do not? We stayed away from it for the most part, but she went in there. She was able to take down Jasmine at will, uh, landed 96, 96 significant strikes. The Everything about her game looked like, okay, you know, throw out whatever happened early on in this girl's career because that 12 and five record doesn't seem to be what she is today blade on the other hand was on contender series she took on like a black belt in uh in maya and was just what i saw from blade uh, on the contender series like she was able to just she's super super strong able to take down and just like control um uh, maya or at least like hold her up against the cage a whole bunch of times as well the real like question mark in this fight is like how good like there's some submission wins on Natalia Silva's record 
How good is her ground game when it gets down there? I'm not entirely sure. From what I've seen from her striking game, I think she should have a speed advantage and probably wins like in terms of volume uh, between the two of these girls. Blada is super, super strong. Can she just hold her down and, and, and maintain position in this fight? I'm not entirely confident uh, about that at all. Potentially, it's a hashtag armbar from guard type of situation. I'm going to pick Silva because I was pretty impressed with her fight against uh, Double J last time out. Um, don't know if I'm going to get to the minus 165 money line, to be perfectly honest, though. What about you? Yeah, so I actually completely agree. And uh, Jasmine's team, they had accepted the fight. They're extremely intelligent people, right? They want to see the tape. They want to know the opponent. They do all their studies. And if they can turn down the opponent for a good reason, then they won't hesitate to do so. Maybe she hasn't got a total lot of negotiating power because she's early in her career, but they like the matchup um, against Silva. The thing that I kept stressing to everybody that I spoke to about it is the long layoff is particularly concerning. People always assume a long layoff is a bad thing. Oh, well, you know, they're going to come back. They're not going to quite be uh, what they used to be. And uh, the ring rust and could be this and motivation. But a lot of the time with these younger fighters, they've taken that time off and they've just improved exponentially. And so just like you said, when she came in against Jasmine, Jasta Devisius, uh, she looked solid, Natalia Silva. Outlands are 96 to 31 with the two takedowns. So... To me, what's extremely impressive about this is Jasmine is a wrestler. Jasmine wrestled at a fairly high level in Canada, late uh, blossomer to the sport of wrestling. But once she got there, had competed at a fairly high level and has routinely mixed in the wrestling competitively into her own fights. So to get taken down uh, by Natalia Silva, she's strong, she's physical, she's got good grappling. The striking, she was doubling her up, tripling her up. She was fighting long. She was using combinations. She was very accurate with her punches. And that's off a three-year-long layoff. That's her first fight back. So I would say that her sophomore outing off this return is going to get even better. I mean, she's young, born in 1997, and is continuously making those improvements, getting better, coming off a very solid victory. And in that victory, she showed you cardio. She showed you pace. She showed you volume. She showed you wrestling and grappling. Kind of the complete package in ways, but still a long ways to go. Don't get me wrong. Teresa Blade up. This is possibly just me being harsh on her, but like I went to my rally's place for every Tuesday's contender series, and quite literally during every episode, we'd be like, yo, five contract Dana? And, yeah, yeah, five contract Dana. Every week! And it would be like, yeah, I'm going to give it five contracts tonight. Every week. With Blada, I was like, yo, man, this is a four contract night because Blada should not get the contract. She did get the early knockdown. She got on top. She And then after that, I didn't really see a whole lot out of her. Now, she's 20 years old. She's super young. She's super green. 100% she could go to LFA. 100% she can come back on the Contender Series. 100% they could have gave her a developmental deal. And then Dana White on his thing says, I don't know what it is about this girl. But there's something about her that I like. <laughs> Who the hell knows what that means, Paul? Who the hell knows what that means? But he does sign her. So now it's like sink or swim, right? You're going to come to the UFC. You're going to have to prove that you belong here. But she's still very young. She's still very green. Physically, she's okay. I think that she's going to have some, some success. But I would think Natalia Silva's just got far better striking, uh, far better. I wouldn't say physicality is far better, but just the striking and the pace should allow her to slowly pull away on the number side of things. And then in terms of Blada clinching up, pressing her up against the cage, and getting a takedown, all things that Jasmine Jasavisius could have done but was unable to. So I think Natalia is going to, again, keep making improvements and show us uh, an even better version of what we saw the last time out, which was good enough. So sign me up for Natalia Silva as well. All right, bets that I am considering this week. Sherman, plus 145. Jalgas, plus 135. The under in the Miles Johns-Vince Morales fight. 
Maria Oliveira, Brady Highstand, and maybe Natalia. All of consideration. No money is actually down on the table. But the people don't come here to hear my picks. They come to hear the PRP. Hit them with it, Cody. Well, we're starting off with Spivak, who probably be at the top of the ticket. And don't be too proud to hedge if you need to. But anyways, we're going to go Spivak. We're going to go with Kenyon Jaku. We're going to go Chase Sherman, dog number one. Muslim Salikov, even money. Cody Brunridge, dog number two. Paul brings up tons of good points. Maybe that's your PRP pick or you just avoid it altogether. But for me, he will be my dog number two right now. Jack Della, he's top ticket material. So I'll get uh, dog number three. I'm going to go with Marina Moroz. I'm going to go with Vince Morales, dog number four. Ricky Tercios, Vanessa DeMompolis is another even money pick. Brady Heinstein and Natalia Silva. So again, at the top, who do you like the most? Well, what screams is uh, <laughs> Jack Della. He's definitely top ticket material. Him versus Spivak, that's getting you close to your even money with that hedge out option. What do you put on beyond that? Well, that's where these cards are getting difficult. It's like, who's your third most confident play? You know, I like I like a Brady Heinstein, I do, but he's young and he's 0-1 in the UFC and he's coming off a year-long layoff and he's a minus 155. I like Natalia Silva. Pat Mayer would slap me right in the face for considering putting that on a second ticket, you know? I like Ricky Tercios, but he just, he blew it so hard his last time out. I like Marina Moroz. Pat Mayer would slap me again across the face, so... Yeah, this is not the easiest parlay card again, but last week's card wasn't an easy parlay card as well. We just hit the favorites that we needed in the right order, and then this week, looking to do the same thing. I wish I had some better advice for prize picks this week, because I think this would be an excellent card to tag from a prize pick standpoint. Unfortunately, you guys facilitated shooting the show on a Monday for me, so we don't quite have the pricing. But uh, yeah. if you got any questions, hit us up online. And uh, and yeah, and if there's any if there's any little little gem that comes along the way, then uh, for sure we'll, we'll try to send it out to the masses. Yeah, like Brady High Stand. I mean, we don't have numbers, so it's hard to say, but like High Stand over, over takedowns. Take <laughs> yeah, yeah. Seems like something that I would be looking for. Maria Oliveira over significant strikes. Interesting. Um, she's got to keep the fight upright. That's the, the, the key thing there, but... Um, the numbers usually are pretty good for her. It'd be interesting just to see the number on that. I'd like um, to see Jack Della's Jack Della's fantasy score because if he KOs Roberts in the first, he's hitting it, and if he beats the crap out of him over three and knocks him out in the third, he's getting it. So in both cases, I feel like he's in for a uh, yeah coming out party. Uh, Shea Sher- Sherman Sherman the over significant over significant strikes. strikes. That would yeah, be. I mean, yeah. these are number. Yeah, it's like yeah for sure. We kind of have an idea of like where. You know, where we would be like, you know, which names we would be searching first. We just don't have numbers to go off of that. But, uh, yeah, um, Ion, even even Ion takedowns, if you get the right type of number. Because, like, that guy can get three takedowns in round one, still get knocked out in round one. And you still get over the two and a half takedowns. You know what I mean? He's like that type of guy. Uh, they actually, they stuff. usually yeah. only do it for the favorites, though. Um, most of these, most of these props, they haven't been doing too many underdog sure, props. Sure, so sure. you're probably not going to get an eye on number on those takedowns, to be perfectly honest. And frankly, Sherman, you're not going to get one on those. Um, but yeah, we'll see where the where the where the prices land, and we'll uh, we'll go from there. But anyway. That was an early first look edition of the Dogger Pass podcast. Hope you guys enjoyed the show. For Cody and Megan, I'm Paul. Saying goodbye and good luck. Oh.